Hello, thank you for listening to this Aspen podcast. My name is Kenneth Christopher. I'm the editor-in-chief of JPEN. Uh, today, we are very lucky to have Dr. Bruno Besson, uh, who is a clinical scientist and intensivist at Hospital de Clinicas at the University of Sao Paulo Medical School in Sao Paulo, Brazil, on as a guest of our podcast. And we are going to talk about his group's study entitled The Association of Fasting in the First 72 Hours of Intensive Care Unit Stay with Outcomes of Critically Ill Patients. Dr. Besson, welcome to the podcast, and we are delighted to have you speak about your article. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's also a pleasure for me to be here. You're most welcome. First of all, I, of course, really liked this study because it was investigating the issue of fasting, which is a very common problem that we have in our intensive care units, whether it's fasting deliberately or fasting because of other procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So I really like the idea of this particular study. But I want to first ask you, what motivated you and your group to do the study? Oh, I think there's a few things that motivated us to, to do the study. First, the, the new Aspen guidelines the, the new guidelines focused on five main questions, as, as you may know, of course. And one of the questions was about the how, how much energy should we deliver in the, the early course of ICU stay. And the guidelines shifted to a, a lower energy target for the, the critical ill patients. And together with these guidelines, we have the, the prior guidance from 2016, also published in JPEN, about early nutritional initiation of enteral nutrition, uh, especially. and. That guideline uh, makes a, a recommendation for starting nutrition early in the course of ACU state uh, based on very low quality of evidence. So we thought since nutrition guidelines are somewhat shifting to the to mid-ground, especially early in the course of ACU state, why not to explore again the, the idea of fasting in the, the first 48, 72 hours of ICU state, or we can say just early nutrition, right? So it's probably mostly the, the same thing. And we had the data collected from 2017 or up to now on our ICU database, if the patient was fed or not with specific nutrition calories. Yeah, you had this knowledge gap and your study was designed to at least attempt to partially fill the knowledge gap in terms of helping essentially the next set of guidelines. Guidelines, as, as you know, are a collection of evidence and sometimes even expert opinion. It's all put together, et cetera, very carefully worded, et cetera. But the importance of filling those particular knowledge gaps so that the guidelines and recommendations can be much more evidence-based, high-quality evidence is very important. So I admire uh, your efforts in terms of trying to fill that particular knowledge gap. The next question I have for you is the specific study design that you chose. Why did you choose your specific study design? Well, I think that stems from also from the previous guidelines. When we, we look at the, the latest uh, GPN guidelines from 2016, the, the quality of, of evidence is all, the, the evidence is based on observational studies, and most of them were done a few years ago, actually a lot of years ago. So they, they actually don't, don't represent current standards of nutrition therapy. And another issue is that they were done with a methodology that was probably not considered nowadays the, the standard of care methodology to conduct an observational study for an intervention. Some of those 
studies adjusted for confounding factors, but not for other issues that may arise during the conduction of such a study. So the primary issue here, we chose this specific study design. Well, it's it's a retrospective cohort, so based on a prospectively collected database. So the, the data quality was good, we think. But there are many flavors of a cohort study, right? So we tried to follow the idea of the emulated target trial which is coming from Miguel Hernandez and others around the world who are expert methodologists. And with this, the idea is to separate the study design from the analysis. So we, we specified uh, inclusion and ex exclusion criteria that would meet more specifically what would have been a trial if we could conduct that. And then we use the methodological, the statistical analysis, and in this case was a matched propensity score to conduct the, the analysis. So the, the idea was this, use more recent methodology. Yeah, so with the propensity score match, what you have done is you have essentially tried to get as close to a randomized trial that you can using observational data. And so what the propensity score matching does is it matches on a certain number of factors in terms of age and gender, et cetera, et cetera, to try to get the two groups as similar as possible which in some ways mimics the design of a randomized control trial. It doesn't completely get rid of confounding. It's just a, another way yeah. of trying to account for variables that are different between the two groups. But it's a very, very elegant way of looking at the data in terms of getting as close to a randomized trial as you possibly can. So that was another piece that I thought was very, very interesting about your approach to that particular study design. So I, I like that part of the study quite a lot. If I could add one. Yeah, go ahead. We also were very worried about including patients that wouldn't either receive nutritional therapy anyway, because they are too severe to, to seek like a, a refractory shock patient and who are likely to die in the first 48, 72 hours of ICU stay. So these patients were not even considered for matching or for inclusion in the, the study. And also those patients that have a very short ICU stay, like uh, 48, 72 hours. So our inclusion criteria in the study were patients who, in, in our case, they they actually stayed in the ICU for, for a few days, but in, in a trial to have been patients with an expected ICU length of stay of at least four days, for example, would be uh, the, the, the inclusion criteria. So this way, we, we we exclude both patients likely to die and those who are likely not to benefit from a nutrition intervention uh, in the ICU state necessarily, right? Yeah, and so it mimics in, in a way how you would design a clinical trial. Um, and so obviously it's being much more specific in the patient population that you're studying. They again, try to get as close to a trial design as possible. Additional data, so very interesting approach. For your group, what was the most difficult part of completing the study? Uh, well, I think the, the most difficult part was actually collecting the data. It is still <laughs> the most difficult part because it's a small SU, as you have seen in the, the manuscript. But the, the senior consultants, uh, there are two of them. One of them is uh, my mentor. It's Marcelo, which is the last author of the paper. He collects his data himself for a long time. So I'm sure this is the, the most challenging part. So this enabled us to have uh, good quality data to, to do the analysis. Nowadays, to conducting the, uh, a good analysis is challenging, but we have lots of resources everywhere. So I think that uh, early researchers can, can achieve that more easily. So having access to high quality data is probably the, the most important issue here. Yeah, and I think the, the real issue, and I talked to 
some of my clinical trainees about this is the actual quality of the data. Does the data actually measure what you think it's measuring? Right? And so having high quality data and longitudinal long-term collection of that high quality data yields results that are much more reproducible and much more real world. Of course, having a single center doesn't allow you to generalize the findings to every single ICU, but the high quality data itself is something that's actually essential to be able to have inferences from the actual results themselves. I've seen this in a few other institutions where the data quality is exceptionally high because of the attention paid by the investigators to the data collection. And so I've seen this in other studies in other fields where that attention to detail can provide very high quality studies. So congratulations to all of the people involved in getting that data because the data collection can be quite difficult. In your opinion, what was the most surprising findings of the study? Well, I think if we look at the recommendation of the guideline and our results, it's the, the different findings, right? So the 2016 guidelines recommend early nutrition uh, intervention, but based on, I looked into it today, I think it's 900 patients and a lot of studies with very few patients. And we had about 180 patients and we observed that there was no difference. So what did we look into it? We looked into mortality and survival, of course. We looked into length of stay in the ICU, and they were exactly the same. We looked into uh, infections. It's a common outcome in nutritional interventions too, and there was no difference. We also looked differently to infections from the perspective of antibiotic utilization, which was not different uh, neither. And finally, we looked into the need for renal replacement therapy. It's something that may be higher in patients who receive more nutrition. And in our study, it was not different. So actually, our study is, is, is completely neutral, which is the, the most surprising finding here. So some of the neutrality in terms of the findings that you found, it could be based in biology. It could be based in, in the severity of illness where when patients are severely ill, they may not be able to utilize the energy and protein that is given simply because they're metabolically deranged where they just are in a survival mode, if you will. Yeah. It also is possible that the sample size that you have is not big enough to be able to find the differences if they indeed exist. But I think what's important about what you've done is you've created more data that can be used to look in you know, combining different studies together, et cetera, because the actual data sets that are available are relatively small. And so that's the caveat with a negative study or a neutral study. Even with power calculations, you don't know if we have enough patients. Maybe we, we need 1,000 patients. Maybe we need 5,000 patients to find that particular difference. But the difference wasn't overwhelmingly found, even with relatively small sample size. It's a big sample size, lots of patients with lots of data collected, but compared to maybe what, what is necessary, it might not be mm. large enough. And so you may need twice the number of patients to find the difference if, if it exists. And so that's the only caveat in terms of a study that's relatively small compared to like a thousand person or a 10,000 person study. But I think that uh, there may be some biological tenants to what you found. And this is the beginning of the story in terms of trying to fill that particular knowledge gap. It's pretty interesting. We, we feel 
that way too. Just one thing I think it's important in the interpretation of the study is that this cohort of patients who fasted were very critically ill, like uh, over 50% uh, risk of mortality. So okay. I think it's not for every patient, right? So it's something that it's a very specific population of very severely ill, <laughs> critically ill patients. Absolutely. When you're interpreting and extrapolating findings from studies, you have to look at the patient population studied and compare it to the population that you may be applying it for. So you're exactly right. Just like a trial, you can only extrapolate the results to that particular population. And so in very, very severe critically ill patients, their metabolism is highly dysregulated. So what you found may be the truth, but we don't know necessarily if it's enough patients to find the difference. And so there's that always that caveat with relatively small studies, but it's definitely something very interesting. If you had the study to do over, what would you change about the design or the collection or what have you? What could you have done differently? It came up in the peer reviewers reports. I think we would co have collected more granular data specifically about how many calories and how much protein the patients actually received, which we didn't have. We only knew if the patients were fed specifically, but they are not. So I think this is the major limitation of our analysis. And I think it's what we would have done differently. Yeah, and I, I think it's important when you're designing studies and collecting data to collect the data that you need and not much, much more. And it's always difficult to know exactly what you need. Mm -hmm you've had this experience, the next study you might design, you might include specific data points that you know that reviewers are particularly interested in. And so the next study that you do might have not necessarily lots more data, but specific pieces of data that are important for your ability to create an inference from the data that address specific confounders or specific issues. What advice, now that you have completed with your group this project over a long period of time, what advice would you have for other investigators? I think the, the, the major advice here is not to take for granted when you, you conduct a, a retrospective cohort study. When, and nowadays, we have a lot of EHRs that are available for you to, to extract data and analyze. So I think it's important that you, when you study an intervention, not a risk factor study, for example, when you're studying a kind of interventions, it's, it's important that you try to emulate the target trial somehow with the data you have and separate the methods, the study design step from the analysis step. Mm. Then maybe we may have data that are more usable for even for guidelines, for example, and of higher quality. Of course, it's not a clinical trial, but the, the results should be easier to, to, to analyze and including guidelines. Yeah, I think that the design is paramount in terms of thinking about how you can design something that will be useful to the broader community, where the results themselves can be added to guidelines or can be even used to think about how to design a clinical trial. It's tricky based on what you have. And so oftentimes reviewers and editors will ask you for pieces of data that you don't have. And that's it's frustrating because if you would have known earlier, you would have added that to the list of things to be collected. But it is very real world. So getting to the real world, what are you and your group, what are you studying now? Here, Louise, who is the, the first author of the manuscript, 
he, he's eager to conduct a, a trial now mm. with this idea and including only very severely ill patients. So patients under mechanical ventilation with vasoactive drugs, for example, and select this very specific cohort of patients who are likely where it's harder to achieve nutritional targets and studying them in a clinical trial. That, that's our idea. We, we are a little bit worried because we're not sure that this study is enough to convince, for example, dietitians and registered dietitians that this would be about the, the clinical acupoise of conducting this, this type of study. So we're still thinking how, how to, to convince everyone to, to go through, through this trial. It's, I, the idea is to conduct a trial in our hostel only and see if the findings are, are somewhat similar and then maybe something larger. Yeah, excellent. So the, the experience of the study has inspired your group to take that next step yourselves and then potentially broaden out to other institutions and make the trial multi-center and be more ambitious, which is terrific. I wanted to thank you, Dr. Bruno Benson, for joining us today. And we also want to thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. I thank Bruno Benson again for joining us. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Uh, this is Kenneth Christopher, Editor-in-Chief of JPEN, signing off. See you next time. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.